of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And while we settle, can I tell you that within 20 seconds of Elijah taking a sip of water, I had to take a sip of water. <laughs> so it was, it was spot on. It was so good. Um, whew. Isn't it good to laugh together? That's not the point of the sermon today, but isn't it good to just laugh together? Uh, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon, I'm sorry, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This has happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, friends. Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word that we may read it and find truth, but more importantly, this truth leads us to you. And so I ask this morning, Lord, as we expound upon your word, as we find ourselves encouraged and challenged as we meet with you, Lord, would you protect our hearts? Would you remove the obstacles that stand in the way between us and you? Would you reveal Jesus to us, O Holy Spirit? then we may be once again come face to face with the lover of our souls, the one who actually wants what's best for us above all, and the one who has done the work of leading us to that. That all we have to do is come and surrender. All we have to do is come with open arms saying, I trust you, Jesus. Have your way in my life and watch as everything changes. God, we thank you that we can even pray this prayer because these things have already happened and you have promised that they would continue to happen. So Jesus, we love you. We are so glad you love us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, friends. So for the final time, good morning. Good morning. It is good to gather together, whether in person and online, and we are glad you are here. For those who have not been around for a few weeks or have been scattered, joining every so often, not to shame you, but we want to remind you, this is where we are this morning, and this is where we have been for the last few weeks the mission of the Spirit. 
looking through the book of Acts to see what God has been up to, because what God has been up to is the same thing that God is doing in today's day, in God's church today. And so, quick recap for you. Over the last two weeks, we poured through Acts 10, and we're going to reference it a little bit again today, because for those of you who were pretty astute, you saw that most of the passage this morning was just a recap of Acts 10. But Acts 10 really drove home these two points for us. Jesus is hope for the hopelessly unclean. We talked about Cornelius. Cornelius being a man who was pursuing God with everything that he had, but everything that he had was not enough. That because of the laws and the traditions of the day, he was never going to get to God. Never. That was not going to change. He was hopeless. And yet we see God very mightily break through into his story and say, I will give you the thing that you most desperately need, but do not have. And that is hope. And that is me. And continuing that story, we see that he sends Peter, right, the de facto leader of the church at this time. He sends Peter, the one who you could look to as an example of what a righteous Jew would have been at that day and age. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter loved Jesus and he loved following the customs that Jesus did as well. The Holy Spirit uses this man, this man, to go and to demonstrate for us that God does not show partiality, that there's not something we need to do or we need to be a certain way in order to come before the throne of grace and find ourselves wrapped in the arms of a loving Savior. Anything and everything that would have stand between us and him, including favoritism, God did away with because of his great love for us. So where do we go from there? Because those are two really good messages that lift up our hearts and they change us from the inside out, right? Where do we go from there? We go to this. Standing in God's way. You read this sentence, and there's two things that come to mind, absolutely, depending on how you read this. I'm either standing in God's way, opposed, or I'm standing in God's way, surrendered. And that alliteration is entirely on purpose because we're talking about both of those things this morning. You'll find, church, that this morning we're going to do a lot of play on words because words are powerful. John 1 says Jesus is the word of God. It is the word that brought life. It brought us a life. So, here we go. And as always, I need water. Our passage starts off this morning with Peter returning to Jerusalem. They don't have technology, right? So news does not travel as instantly fast as it does in our day and age. But the passage records for us that the news of what happened to Peter and Cornelius makes its way back to Jerusalem, the de facto headquarters of the church, where there is a large congregation of not just Jews, but people from all the surrounding nations. This is important news going to an important place. And so Peter returns there, and we find that when he gets there, he is greeted by some of the brothers. He's greeted by some of the people who say, I trust Jesus. I follow Jesus. We are part of the same family. But it gives us a very important detail. The men who greeted him are part of what is called the circumcision party. What does that mean? It very simply means this, which is something we've talked about before from this stage. They are God-fearing, righteous Jews who believe that to follow Jesus, you must be Jewish. Now, I want to make sure, I want to be very clear on this, because this is something that sometimes people can get confused about when we talk about the Jews of the day of Jesus. Them being Jewish had nothing to do 
with how they inerrantly followed Jesus. They could have been from any race that existed. They could have been from any people group that God would have selected. Let's not get hung up on the fact that because they were Jewish, that's the reason they failed to follow Jesus. The reason they failed to follow Jesus is because they were human. And they were full of sin, just like all of us before Jesus. But they belong to this party that says, to follow Jesus, we believe he is the Savior. You must be Jewish. And we see that in the criticism they give to Peter. Peter, you met with unclean people. That's a big deal. That is a very big deal for a group of people who sees themselves as clean and holy, set apart by God and for God to soil that, to take what God made clean and to make it dirty, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit says to Peter, is a big deal to them, and rightfully so. And so Peter finds, okay, I need to clear the air. I actually need to be the one who gives you exactly the details of what happened. Because they all hear this news. That's why they're coming up to Peter, right? He makes his way to town. They go, whoa, hold on, we got to talk. We got to talk. We heard this news. Give us the details. And Peter goes, okay, I will give you those details. And that's what we see happen. Friends, again, I've mentioned this already, but his entire, this entire passage mostly is a recap of Acts 10. And if you don't remember or if you forgot, both of which are entirely okay. Here's a one-minute synopsis. There's a man named Cornelius who is trying to be with God and can't. And so God sends the most unlikeliest of people, a Jew to a Gentile, to do something not seen before on the face of the planet, for the door to be opened for the gospel to reach not just the Jews now, everyone. We cannot stress the importance of Acts 10. Acts 10 blows the doors off the place. Acts 10 opens all the windows. Now everybody is game for the hope and love and the truth and the power and the life of Jesus. We are only sitting in this church or watching online because Acts 10 happened. Remember that. Every time you read Acts, this is the part where we would have been left out and God says that does not stand. That's what happens in Acts 10, and that's what he tells them. But there are a few details that we need to hone in on for a second. One is the detail where, if you saw, Peter was being led by the Holy Spirit. He got the visions three times. Even when the men came to his door, it says, the Holy Spirit told me I had to go. Do you see the direction, the consistent drawing near of the Holy Spirit to make sure God's plan is going forth? This isn't the point of the sermon, but sometimes we rummage around going, God, what's the plan for my life? What's the purpose? Where are you at? What are you doing? Give me direction. And God's like, I will. Are you going to let me draw near or not? Because I'm not going to give you directions from over there. I'm going to give you directions right here because he is a God who draws near. Right? That's an important detail that's going to come up again. But then, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This should sucker punch you in the stomach. It should. Because Peter admits something that is sometimes very hard for us to admit. Sometimes we stand in God's way. And no one wants to do that. No one actually thinks they do that. And I get it. Trust me. I don't want to think that I do that either. It's hard to look at the darker places of your life, the parts that have not been changed or yielded to Jesus yet, and go, that gets in the way of this? It can. And friends, that stinks. But it more than just stinks. It costs us. 
Standing in God's way, opposition, costs us. And it costs those around us as well. What does it cost them? Life. Nothing short of the most important thing that we are all desperately craving. Actual life. Not just another breath of air, although that too. Actual life. But why does this happen? Because of sin. Sin births pride. The Bible teaches us that through sin came death. Right? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there was no death in the garden. Adam and Eve and all of the offspring would have lived with God in perfect harmony forever because they had all that they need. They had him. But then sin and Satan gets in the way. And that births what? Pride. Pride. It's a word that we struggle with. It's a word that we don't like. It's a word that rubs us the wrong way sometimes. But it's something we have to talk about this morning. So, what is pride? Pride is taking credit for what God has done. Pride is stealing the glory from God in an attempt to soothe ourselves. Pride is self-worship. Pride is simply the idea that the world revolves around God and we go, revolves around me now. It's something that history bears to the fact that we have been doing all along. All right, here's a really silly example. The astronomers used to think we were the center of the universe, Earth itself, and that the sun revolved around us, that the source of light and gravity in the universe somehow revolved around us. And you can imagine their surprise when one day, once our powers of observation got to that level, they realized, oh, we're not in the middle at all. We revolve around the sun. Whoops. Silly example, sure, but it's an example that bears true in and of our lives. We get into such a mess when we try to put ourselves in a position that we were never meant to be in in the first place. For those who have kids or have had kids when they were really, really young, do you ever have one of those uh, toys where they had the blocks of different shapes, square, triangle, rectangle, circle, whatever, and the kid would always try to take the square block and try to shove it through the triangle hole? And they would try, and they would try, and they would try, and it would just not work. And you're like, oh, no, you'll learn. That's cute. That's us. <laughs> Honestly, guys. And I don't say that to shame you. I say that to open your eyes. That is us. We are consistently trying to take the square block that is our life and shove it, shove it into a triangle peg, a triangle hole, thinking that's going to work and it's going to make sense, and it's going to fill something inside of us. It's going to change something inside of us, and somehow it's going to change the world. And it doesn't work ever. 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 But I want to be clear. What is not pride? Because this is the part where sometimes we get confused. Pride is not the sensation of a job well done or the feeling of satisfaction in a loved one's accomplishments. If you have kids and you go to the sporting event or a dance recital or whatever it is that they do and they do a good job and you go up to them and you, hey, you did a great job. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad I got to see you do that. And they light up because of the love and affection you're giving them and the sensation that wells up inside of you and inside of them. That, that's pride. That's not the pride we're talking about. That's actually from God. Because believe it or not, friends, God feels that way about you. You ever consider that? When Jesus was baptized, before he started his earthly ministry, what were the words that God gives to him? You are my beloved son. He hasn't done anything yet. 
Literally. He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't healed. He hasn't preached. He hasn't died. He's done nothing. So if we need to earn God's affection for us in that sense, that doesn't make sense. Jesus didn't. And he had it already. And what he experienced in that moment and what others experienced in that, in that moment was the, this kind of pride, the welling up of the sensation of affection for a beloved son or daughter. Friends, are you aware that God is proud of you? If it's up to your accomplishments to make God proud or not proud of you, then we're all in a hole. We are. But if simply because God loves you and God desires more for you than you do for yourself, and God desires to see you change into the person you were always meant to be in him and through him and for him, then God can look at you and say, I am proud of you for every time you surrender. I am proud of you for every time you turn back. I am proud of you for every time you listen and obey. I am proud of you for becoming the son or daughter I always meant for you to be. This dad is proud of you. We don't talk about that kind of pride enough because we get it confused with this pride. And we need to keep those separate, absolutely. But let's not be afraid of putting ourselves in the middle, even though that's the thing that happens anyway. Let's not be afraid of when we do that reality that we reject this reality. That even when we are fighting God to be the center of our lives, God still looks at us and says, man, I love you so much, you dingus. So what fuels pride? The things that you find on the screen in front of you are not pride. For example, fear. Fear is not pride. But it certainly fuels it. It's the already raging fire that then we throw more wood on top of, and we blow more air on top of, and we give it more kindling. These are the things that may not start pride in our lives, but they certainly fuel it. I'll give you a really easy example. When we are afraid, we lose hope. And when we're afraid, we stop trusting. For in one way or another, we end up doing this. Everything out here is going to hurt me. Everything out here is not trustworthy. Everything out here is going to fail me. So I'm going to shrivel and become a hovel, and I'm the only thing I can rely on now. Guess what you just did? You made yourself the center of the universe. Now, you may say, but Tommy, the, like, I'm afraid. Right? It makes sense. Yeah, you can understand the logic, but it actually doesn't make sense. Sometimes we like to downplay things like fear and wounds we've given to others and the mistakes that we carry around. Sometimes we try to make them little than they actually are. Friends, when it comes to fear that someone might like run into your house and steal your stuff, or fear that when your kid first starts learning how to drive, that they might get into a car accident, fear that you might not have enough money to pay for your next paycheck. Those are what I will call legitimate fears. But being afraid that God's not going to show up, we have to be honest. That's illogical. That does not make sense. Because he's never done anything to the contrary. Literally, there's not an ounce of proof you could find anywhere on the planet, in any book, and in any testimony that shows that God didn't show up. So when we're afraid of him, we replace him, or we try to. And that's pride. And things like the mistakes we give to others, for example. 
Oh, remember that one time I failed this test, or that one time uh, I tried to give advice to somebody and it just went awful. That one time where uh, I, I wanted to have a conversation with my spouse and I wanted to do it lovingly and gently and I just blew up or I shut down. And then we carry those things around with us, like a backpack with 50 pound rocks. And we carry that around. Things like that can fuel pride because it makes it dependent on us. It fuels self-dependency. And if anything, in the passages that we've been reading through Acts, especially lately, self-dependency does not get us very far. Because if it was up to Peter, Peter never would have left that house. The Gentiles would have never heard. Cornelius would have been stuck exactly where he was if it was up to Peter and if it was up to Cornelius. Has pride always been an issue? Has opposition to God always been an issue? Has it costed us? Does it cost the lives of those around us? Has it? Yes. Has it always? Yes. It has. Genesis 3. It's the worst chapter of the Bible, <laughs> in my opinion. Because Genesis 3 is when Satan shows up. And he convinces Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, to give them something that they always had. That they always had in God. Because they had God. And yet they bought into the lie and they bit literally into the apple. And then phew, here we are. Right? We see Genesis 3 when Satan is tempting Eve. What does he say to her? Did God really say that? Can you trust him? Just that little seed of doubt blossoms into something that makes Adam and Eve try to be God. Because Satan was trying to always be God. That's why Satan gets kicked out of heaven. That's why he falls. He succumbs to the only sin where God opposes the person instead of the sin itself. Pride. We've said that a lot in the last couple of weeks. I wonder why. But we see that in Matthew 4 and the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus goes and entirely relying on just the Holy Spirit because he does not eat food or drink water for 40 days. Satan tempts him and slings arrow after arrow after arrow. And basically every temptation revolves around this. God said he would do this, but I can do better. Jesus, I got you. Just bow the knee. Serve me. Forget Yahweh. And I'll give you everything you want. I'll give you the desires of your heart. That sounds good, doesn't it? If it doesn't come with a giant fine print that says, oh, by the way, when that happens, you lose, and so does everybody else. Right? Imagine this. This is a totally hypothetical scenario, but I think it matters for us to reason with this. What if Jesus succumbed? What if he gave in in the wilderness? The story stops there. He loses. We lose. Satan wins. And that's literally, that's literally hell. Everyone loses. But then places like James, the aforementioned verse that we have been referencing week after week after week. But he, God, gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's that passage we keep referencing. It's meant to put a fine point on this idea of opposition towards God. Friends, I don't want to beat your head over this. I don't want to make you feel bad. That's not the point. But the point is, if we are going to live lives differently, if things are going to change in our lives and in the world, and if we're going to see Jesus win, we have to confront these things. We cannot be afraid of the things that seem like they're going to swallow us up. 
We cannot be afraid of the parts of our lives where we don't want to turn and face because it's too ugly or it's too hard or I just plain don't want to change. Friends, we have to turn and face this. Standing in God's way, opposition, costs us. I'll give you a really easy example. My daughters are going through a phase right now where when they get upset for one reason or another, whether it's because someone name-called somebody else or hit somebody else, whatever it is, a lot of times they physically run away. Right? If I, if I could be on one side of the living room, they could be playing in the middle, we could be playing whatever, oh, you're a meanie. Oh, she called me a meanie, and runs away. Runs to another part of the house, runs upstairs. It's annoying. It is. It's just annoying. And I can sit there, and I can call one of them, hey, can you come here, please? I can raise my voice without yelling, right? Like, hey, can you come here, please? You know how often they come? Not very often. And I'm left with two choices. I can either change my tactic, or I can get frustrated. And sometimes I change my tactic, and sometimes I get frustrated. And sometimes when I get frustrated, my voice gets louder, because I'm trying to put a little sternness into it without yelling at them, hey, I need you to come here. Guess how often that works? Not very often. Also annoying. <laughs> but then I'm left with this choice, because if I keep getting frustrated, I'm not actually going to get what I want, which is for her to come down, or for her to come back into the room, and to have a conversation, so that I can deal with whatever happened, so I can soothe them, and then we can move on with our day, or we can do bedtime, or whatever it is. If I kept pursuing that path, I am actually self-sabotaging. I'm not going to get what I want. And the thing standing in the way of me getting what I want is me, not them. They're children. Or if I maybe meet them halfway and I get down on one knee, because fun fact, psychologically and sociologically speaking, when you're talking to kids, if you are at their height, they respond better. I get down on a knee and I say, hey, what's going on? Can we talk? Eight and a half out of 10 times, they come. And they cry and whatever it is, whatever it is, we talk about it and then we move on. It's like, whoa, look how that was when I respond with the gentleness and the care and the consideration of our heavenly father. When I'm a father in his stead the way that he is, it works. Because it's like God's way does work. But when I oppose God's way, and I literally stand in it, it costs me. And it costs my daughters in this example. Do you see how this happens? Do you see how so often we can have a good desire deep down inside, a God-given desire deep down inside, but because we go about it in distorted or unhealthy ways, we self-sabotage, and everyone loses. We see this with the circumcision party. With the circumcision party, they are holding on to customs and traditions that matter to them. Friends, hear me when I say this. They believe and follow those things for a reason. Sometimes it's really easy to read the stories of some of these guys and girls in the Bible and think, man, you're just dumb. How did you not get it? Why are you so consumed about that instead of literally the Lord and Savior who appeared in front of you? But they held on to those things for a reason because those, those things matter. Deep down inside, they had a desire to see God followed and to see God glorified, right? Can we see that that's how the, what they wanted deep down inside? But can we see how that came out in such a distorted way? Peter, why didn't you meet with those men? Why are you meeting with unclean people? They're concerned. Their concern comes out all the wrong ways. And for a moment, they stand in God's way. But it's not just a random thing that happened. That's the thing that started all the way down here that said, okay, I want to see God glorified. And then when it went and came out here, 
It became opposition. Do we see how that happened? Because that's an important detail I want you to hold on to. God knows this is happening. He knows. And so he has prepared Peter. But do you know the great lengths to which he has to prepare Peter for this moment in time? Not that this is the end-all, be-all of Peter's life. But this is a big moment. Because this is a make or break, right? He has to find Peter and tell him, follow me and I'll make you a fisherman of men. He has to lead Peter for three years. And if you don't know anything about Peter, Peter's a hothead. He's super passionate, super zealous. Leading people like that sometimes can be very difficult. But, but Jesus does it faithfully. Jesus has to stomach and suffer Peter's betrayal. When Peter out loud says, I'll never do that. And God knows, yeah, you will. And he stomachs and he suffers through that. But then not only that, when he comes back to life, Jesus then has to fight through Peter's shame and guilt to get to Peter to say, Peter, I'm trying to restore you because I love you. And then after that, he has to give him a vision, not once, not twice, but three times. I don't know if any of you have ever received a vision from God. It can literally knock you off on your feet. To get three, to get three. I, I have no words to describe how powerful an experience that must have been. Not only that, Peter then has to be given direct insight time and time again throughout Acts 10. Go with these men. Go to this house. Talk to these people. Go read Acts 10 again if you don't believe me. Time and time again, the Holy Spirit's showing up, giving him, okay, let's go, Peter. Okay, let's go, Peter. We got a thing to do. God goes through great lengths to make sure when this moment happens in Acts 11, Peter is ready to testify to the truth. He's doing what God told him to do in Acts 1-8, be a witness to all that I am doing. And Peter meets the challenge. But now let's talk about surrender. Because we don't want to stand in God's way. We want to stand in God's way. Like Psalm 1 says, being a tree planted by the river of life, firm in God's truth. I want to stand in God's way. Sometimes the word we use for that is alignment, right? If you ever had a car that got out of alignment, you could be driving straight, but your steering wheel is like this. Not good. <laughs> you're going to mess up the car. Or if you're driving and you go to hit the uh, accelerator and you're sure you're in park or you're sure you're in drive and you're sure there's gas in the car, but it doesn't work, the mechanic's like, oh, your alternator fell out or your carburetor or some other car part. And you're like, what the heck? That's going to cost a lot of money. And they say, yes, it is. <laughs> But to be in alignment with God, to be standing in his way, leads us and those around us to true life. John 10.10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may find life, and life to the fullest, real life. Life that is packed with purpose and significance and value packed with mission and power and authority, packed with the things that make us look at the parts of our lives that we don't want to look for, and we're not afraid of those things anymore because Jesus has always known those things and he's never been afraid of them. And by God's grace, we see that play out in the circumcision party because they hear Peter's testimony and instead of, huh, they stop. A lot of times, pride is loud, not necessarily verbally, but loud in the sense of if you went to the zoo and there's a bunch of monkeys sitting in a cage and they're just chattering and they're throwing food at each other, that, ah, it makes a lot of noise. It's a lot of disturbance. It's a lot of, uh, I can't help but focus on this thing. Pride sometimes is very loud. And I think it's very, very cool that they respond with silence. They stop 
And they do what Psalm 46 says, I'm going to be still and know that you are God. I'm going to reckon with this thing that has come before them. Because what they are wrestling with, friends, right now is, is what Peter just told us from God or not? Right? Because if they don't believe it's from God, they're going to get on Peter's case. You still, nope, that's not from God. Here's X, Y, Z, Y, and you still met with uncircumcised men, so now we have a bigger problem. But if it is from God, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And so they respond with silence. For our middle schoolers and high schoolers, when we do soul youth, and whenever we're done with our lesson time, before we enter our small group time, we do what we call ask, listen, share, discuss. And we start with silence and solitude to sit and listen to what internally is going on here, but to listen to what the Holy Spirit is trying to confirm or reveal about who Jesus is or about what we just talked about before we can go and share and discuss it. We stop. And we make sure we do not stand in the way of what God wants to do. And friends, it works. It works. Because what do we read in our passage? The circumcision party responds with silence and then prays. They lift up the name of Jesus and said, yes, God, you have been glorified. Which, remember, which is, that was their deep desire all the way down. They wanted to make sure God was honored. By Peter's testimony, they find that that has come true. And so there's no need for pride. There's no need for any of these things that stand in the way. They respond, and what do they say? All right, we find that it is good that the way of Jesus has now come to the Gentiles as well. They find life in that moment, and they remove themselves to, from becoming a stumbling block from which now all of the Gentiles will now hear the good news of Jesus and find life. Friends, that is astronomically important astronomically important that we, miss, that we don't miss this. This was the moment, their response to Peter upon everything which would have hinged. And even there we see the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of these men. Peter experiences life by being first-hand witness to the power of the Holy Spirit. He sees that in Acts 10. We don't fully get all the details, but I have to make an educated guess and think that when Peter went to the house of Cornelius and he started sharing the gospel, he wasn't sure what was going to happen. But right before his very eyes, the Holy Spirit falls and it fills these group of people who, according to his past knowledge, should never have happened. And in that moment, he sees lives transformed from in front of his very eyes. For those of you who have ever volunteered at anything, who ever served in any kind of capacity, to see God work in somebody's life right in front of you does something in your heart. It gives you hope and courage again. It, has, it doesn't even have to do anything about you. You don't even have to be the one praying for them or talking to them. You could just be a witness to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And you look at that and you go, man, God is good. And Peter experiences that. Friends, you know that we can experience that too. We can. And I have a story for that. Um... I'm gonna need tissues. Sorry, AV people, I walked off shot. Two weeks ago, we did a youth group lesson on hopelessness, which ironically enough was the same thing that Pastor Will preached on Sunday morning. Did we plan that? No. I can show you the document that we have where he writes out what each passage is gonna be for each Sunday. That was done back in August. And I wrote my youth group lessons probably somewhere around September. You know, we both end up talking about hopelessness on the same day. Hmm. 
coincidences, huh? I don't believe in them. So we end up talking about hopelessness at youth group, and we have a time afterwards where our students are able to reflect. And it ends up being one of those things where I feel led to go talk to a student. And we talk to about the hopelessness that the students are experiencing in their life and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it ended with uh, a moment of prayer where really what this student wanted was a reminder. A reminder that God saw them. And did not forsake them. That even in the midst of their hopelessness, he was there. So we gathered some other students. Actually, we didn't. It was a total happenstance that some of these other students came around. And we ended up praying for the student. And I want you to make sure you catch this detail for an entirely different thing. We talked, him and I talked about A, and then we prayed about B. Okay? And after we were done praying, one of the students went, hey, is it really hot in here? I said, no. <laughs> and everyone else was kind of like, no. And they're like, hey, student we just prayed for, do you have a fever? No. Okay, well, we were praying, and I had my hands on you, and the entire time I just kind of felt heat coursing through me, from me into you. And then a third student went, I knew it! Like, what the heck, what did you know, <laughs> sir? This is what happens. If you've never personally experienced for this, here's a quick 101 theology. Sometimes, when the Holy Spirit's moving in the room, there's supernatural heat that accompanies it. We see that in Acts 2, tongues of fire. So it's not a coincidence. It's not always. It's not a hard, fast rule. But a lot of times, it is evidence that, hey, the Holy Spirit's moving. And what is it that we were talking about before? We didn't pray about it. Remember, we talked about A, but we prayed about B. But the A thing that we talked about was, God, I want you to show me that you're in my life. And then he did it. Right there. Like that. And that student recognized it and appropriately wept. Because sometimes we get scared to ask God, okay, God, please show up. And God's like, no, 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 no. I show up. I show up. And even if you want to discount the heat thing, even if you want to, oh, is it a coincidence? No. Even if you want to discount all of that, that student, without having a conversation, knew God showed up. What do you have to say about that? I didn't have to convince them. They knew. And friends, they experienced this idea that they found life in that moment. And we can too. The James 4 chapter that I was referencing has some more verses I want to read for you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When God makes a promise, it's as good as a done deal. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, you see the humility as the, against pride, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Do we see how these verses highlight for us that when we surrender to God's way, we find life and so do those around us. Second Chronicles is one of a bunch of places we can jump to that God makes this important uh, connection Man, when you are in alignment with me, I use that to get all the other people around you in alignment. 
But when you are not in alignment with me, there's an inverse effect. It ends up poisoning and being destruction to those around you. Those are God's words. Those are heavy words. But those are words we don't have to be afraid of. Because humility is simply as saying this. God, help me to be in your way. God, help me to be in your way, not be in your way. Help me to follow you, Jesus. Change me, Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, show up in my life. It's as simple as that. You don't need to have big, fanciful prayers. You don't need to know the entire Bible from front to cover because, or front to back because, friends, nobody does. But you do have to have a heart that is going to come to the Lord and says, Jesus, here I am. No matter if you trust him as your Lord and Savior or not, that could be your first step. But even if you've been following him for all 80 years, saying again, Lord Jesus, here I am. I surrender to your way. Come change me. Come lead me to life everlasting. And come use me to lead others to life everlasting. Because that's, that's what happens in Acts 11. And that changes everything. If you don't know anything about the book of Acts, we're about to get to a part of the book that is absolutely unbelievable. It's insane what happens. It defies logic. It defies reasons. You think God has done cool things so far? Just you wait. But that happens because Peter and these men from the circumcision party and the rest of the church see what God is doing and they say, we're not going to stand in your way. Oh, no, we're not going to stand in your way. Who are we to stand in your way? We're going to stand in your way. We're going to surrender and watch as God once again does the thing that he does best, changes us, changes those around us, leads us to life everlasting, waters that satisfy the soul, Bread that nourishes the stomach once and for all. Relationship that is authentic and deep and more life-giving than we can ever imagine. Power to see the world change in the way of Jesus. Power and authority to see evil pushed back. But life, real life, everlasting. Friends, this morning, will you take that risk? Because it is. It's a good risk. It's a risk worth taking. But we take that risk to say, Jesus, I'm not going to stand in your way. I want to stand in your way. Let's pray. God, we love you. We are so grateful for the story. We are so grateful for using Peter and for using the circumcision party. We are so grateful for Cornelius and his persistent pursuit of you. God, we are so thankful that pride, even though can wreck so many things, it does not Wreck it beyond repair, that you are the God who draws near and heals and restores, who uplifts and encourages, who sharpens like a well-oiled knife. So God, we ask, would you come and do that today? The things that would stand in between us and you, God, we rebuke in your name and authority. And the things that would want to lie to us, we rebuke in your power and authority. But Holy Spirit, come, draw near as you have been drawing near, and speak to us. Please speak to us. Reveal to us Jesus Birth in us a desire for Jesus and uh, stoke up the flames in our heart for Jesus that we may surrender to him, that we may trust him, whether with all of our lives or another facet of our lives. And we would find in this moment and in the moments preceding and in the moments throughout this week and in the moments throughout the months and lives of our years as they go on forth, that that moment of surrender changed things 
because we stood in your way and not in your way.